Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. Today, we'll be talking about Modern Masters in the Power 9 Cube, a discussion of judging and vintage, and then Serious Food and Drink takes on the holidays. We're here with a special guest today. Um, we're here with Abe Corson. You may know him as Catsby on the Manavan. He's a level two judge. He's been playing Magic apparently for 18 years since the dark, and he's been judging for 10 years. So we thought we'd get his opinions on vintage in general, since he's a longtime vintage player, and whether there are any special considerations he takes into account when he judges vintage events versus judging other events. Plus, he's also um, a longtime collector of Magic the Gathering cards, so we thought we'd get his thoughts on the reprints and the reserve list, that sort of thing as well. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. Thanks for coming. So who's excited about Modern Masters? Me! Yeah, I guess everyone's excited about Modern Masters. It's coming out on June seventh, twenty thirteen, and it should prove pretty interesting. They're going to have a lot of uh, a lot of special reprints, I think, that they'll be holding off on until the last possible minute, I suppose. You mean the previews? Yeah, they announced Tarmogoyf what a month ago now, and it's been quiet since then. They made that announcement first on let's see, on October twenty second. So yeah, it has been a month. And really, the only two cards we know right now are Tarmogoyf and City of Brass. Well, this is this is part of the regular cycle of announcements. Yeah, I mean they, they they do obviously leave plenty of time for hype and speculation, and you know once they get down to it in the spring, they'll they'll start making their their announces and their previews and things like that. So we'll we'll find out eventually what all is in it. Yeah, yeah, I think the the interesting part about the Modern Masters is you know like they're doing it for the rares, right? So they already announced Tarmogoyf because they want the format to be more accessible to newer players. But we talked a little bit about the commons. So, you know, if you want to have a set that's going to be, you know, supposedly mostly good cards, like, how do you print that many commons and what are they going to be? Yeah, they're going to have, it's going to be a 229 card expansion and they're going to have 101 commons, 60 uncommons, 53 rares, and 15 mythic rares. I think that was my question too, is like, where, where are these commons going to come from? Are there any big commons that people are looking for? I don't even know. Well, I don't know if you've tried to buy a Pestermite recently, but that's like a $4 card, and that's if you can find them. I suppose that uh, Manamorphos also fits that. Manamorphos is like $2.50 now. Yeah, Manamorphos is 2 bucks. By the way, just to add something to what you were saying about its accessibility, uh, I'm, I don't necessarily agree that it, the uh, idea of the set is to make modern accessible to new players. It's just to make it accessible to players, period since uh, the typical you know cycle of card ownership for most magic players these days is to sell off as soon as the cards rotate out i mean there are, there are plenty of magic players that have been around for a little while that can't play modern as a result of the fact they don't have those cards anymore right i mean i i don't i didn't necessarily mean like brand new players but like players that you know like you said they sell off their cards once they rotate out the standard right. new new to modern players Gotcha. Man, I'd really be in frown town right now if uh, I had sold off my Tarmogoyfs when they rotated out of standard. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why anybody would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, those those things were not being priced by standard at the time since they rotated out. And, you know, they were in the uh, that future shifted frame, so, of course, they had to be reprinted eventually. It's true. <laughs> I, I think that, to me, the interesting part of this set is that 
they're trying to make these cards available for players, but at the same time, they're walking the line that they've stated where they're saying that Chronicles is a very maligned set. They don't want people to perceive this set like that, and they've stated that this set will not affect the price of current cards, which, frankly, I find difficult to believe. I don't know if it's going to have a huge effect, but it seems like it has to have some effect on current cards because you're increasing the supply. Right. But I, I mean, there's a difference between printing so many more copies of Tarmogoyf that you drop its price by $30 and printing enough copies of Tarmogoyf that you drop its price by 10 You know, I still think there's going to be a lot of people who are looking for the older version of Tarmogoyf and all the cards just because they're the older version. That's the first thing that was printed. That's, you know, that's, that's still got a little bit more prestige because it came out of a pack that was the first one that could hold it. I agree, but I'm, I'm going to take an extreme example here, and I'm going to take a vintage example. There's a big difference between an unlimited mox and a beta mox. Well, there's also a big difference in the number of those that exist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that difference is huge, right? Yeah, it's between true. Between beta and, and unlimited. Yeah. And I suppose when you go into anything that was printed and revised, immediately takes a nosedive just because that print was so huge. So maybe that's a right. bad example. And yeah, I mean, God forbid you play a 5th edition Mana Vault. Or a fourth yeah. edition Mistress Factory. Ugh. Uh, like you borrowed it from your sister. <laughs> well, it makes choosing the art really easy. Right. You know, I, I got I mean, a set of Four Seasons Antiquity set just so I could move beyond the My Sister's Mistress Factories. <laughs> right. Yeah, Four Seasons Antiquity set is Four Winters, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the collector so, coming out. So how does this set affect Vintage? Is there anything that we... Want to see? Don't want to see? What's what's going to happen out of vintage for this? I think if you're if you're committed to play vintage, you know, paying your forty bucks for a dark confidant is better than paying your three hundred dollars for a box pearl. Right. Any savings that you make on that dark confidant, though, is additional money to put towards your mox pearls. So I mean, you That's take true. your savings where you can get them. Not every vintage player has money coming out of their ears. But at the same time, I mean, we haven't confirmed our confidence, so it's hard to say that. I don't think that the printing of Tarmogoyf is going to bring anybody into Vintage. I think that we could see some players that are going to pick up some cards that they that will fit into their Vintage decks, but it's not going to be, there isn't going to be any movement for new people to get into Vintage because of Modern Masters. It's not like right, the card pool is going to be breached at all. The yeah. format doesn't automatically explode because of Modern Masters. Yeah, definitely. yeah I agree. I think it would be neat to see some reprints of some vintage cards. I mean, you could see something like gifts. You could see thirst for knowledge. Things that get played in vintage because they're actually good in vintage rather than just simply playable. Mm-hmm. Would it be neater than the reprints that we've already recently seen? I mean, remember that thirst was in was in the theme deck, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was in right? dual, yeah, decks. The dual deck. Yeah. And even dark confident has been kind of printed reasonably heavily as a judge foil somewhat recently. Right. And I have several copies myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess something. I mean, all of the vintage cards are going to be available, except for power, really. I mean, that's the thing. You, you know, all of these cards are out there, even even Tarmogoyfs, which are played in vintage. So. Power and duels, I guess, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't really think that this necessarily makes a big difference for, for so, vintage. So do we want to go, go around and all of us make some Modern prediction? Masters predictions? It's way up in the air at this point. A lot of things that could be printed, a lot of things that would be good, a lot of things that would be meh. So. Yeah, I mean, well, well for, not speaking for vintage, but speaking for modern, I mean, modern seems to have a lot of issues with their uncommons. Okay. So you have Kitchen Finks, Spell oh. Snare, 
Remand, Inquisition of Kozilek, which are just like difficult cards to find. Sure. Oh man, so, I mean, Spell Snare those. would be huge. Yeah, I mean, I could see those as kind of easy reprints. Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I've been uh, playing around, some of my friends have been playing casual, and I uh, put together a mono-brown deck that runs posts. I was thinking that Vesuva would be a, a likely reprint, given the uh, the popularity of post. The One of the posts got banned. Oh, it did? Yeah, Cloud Post. Oh, man, I'm totally behind the times. Best post is... Yeah, yeah. I think that... The cloud, one that makes me... Yeah, Cloud Post was the one that actually made post work. Glim, <laughs> Glimmer Post is like... Look at me! I gain you life. Yeah. <laughs> that one is not banned. <laughs> well then, maybe Vesuva is less likely then. Though I still think that Vesuva is a decent candidate. It's an interesting card. Um, yeah. Well, the problem was people were ramping to fifteen mana so fast and just hard casting Emrakul that. Oh, well, Cloud Post is you... ridiculous. Like even playing just Cloud Post and Glimmer Post, it gets you mana fast. Yeah. It is insane. I mean, it's it's even reasonably decent with with Urzatron. Yeah, and that deck I'm playing Urzatron and and eight posts, and my friends don't like it. <laughs> That's because you're not a casual gamer anymore. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I I have to run my decks by them before I play them. They're like, yeah, that seems right. okay. Wait, you're making how much mana on turn seven? <laughs> well, turn seven. Jeez. We're playing casual. <laughs> Nobody kills fast. I understand. So I predict the reprint of we go with Sulkinar the Swamp King and Craw Giant. My reasoning being that these cards appeared in both Chronicles and Chronicles 2, otherwise known as Time Spiral Purple. So they're just going to hit up all the reprints on those cards. Well, we, we, we have to have a couple of cards that are in all three Chronicles. Chronicles 3 that. being the Master's Edition, you know, just to kind of keep the keep it going a little bit. Plus also Craw Giant is one of my favorite cards for having just about the least PC flavor text out of uh, any card I can think of these days. What is the flavor text? Well, uh, it has the M word on it. Oh. Uh, worse, worse. I, I don't want to repeat it on the podcast. M word. Oh, yeah. Little person. Right. You're going to have to bleep that. Really? <laughs> Alright, I mean, you're, you're making me magic cards info this. <laughs> well, it was, it was said. It's ho ho ho, puny m****, come on, you know this flavor text, it's, don't you? It's been a long time. Shouldn't that have been the flavor text on Earthbind? <laughs> oh man. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm wait, actually, that. no, they can't reprint Craw Giant. Because then people would have to play with Rampage, and people just can't get Rampage. I mean, is Crow Giant currently legal in Modern? Yeah. It was reprinted in Time Spiral, so it is. Oh, it just, it just sees zero play. Strangely <laughs> enough. I wonder why. I wonder why. What does it cost? Like seven? Crawworm plus, plus one. Yeah, yeah and, and plus green. four of those are green. I'm going to say that Arcbound Ravager and Cranial Plating get reprinted. Oh, yeah, Cranial Plating. That one's only a buck fifty anyway, so yeah, it's pretty cheap. I can see Kiki Juki getting reprinted. That's kind of like a fifteen dollar card that sees play in one or two decks as a Is one of Kiki Juki. Like that's another card that's already been reprinted recently. So yeah, it was reprinted in the the Legends, like the terrible from the vault missed opportunity. Yeah, I don't, I don't really feel like the from the vaults really affect card prices at all. Well, that's what I'm saying. A lot of these collectors' edition become collectors, like they actually hold their value and all of the cards are still valuable, mm. except for the ones that are terrible and nobody cares about. 
So, like, Kiki Jiki is playable, so it still has value. Right. I don't know. Chapel, did you tell us what you thought was going to be in Modern Masters? I think Dark Confidant is... I'm going to say that's probably going to be a mythic. Uh, I could see Vendillion Click, Beautiful. Those are kind of some, you know, 30 to $40 rares. Well, what about, like, Bloodbraid Elf? Is that, uh, is that in line? Uh, Shards Block. Where, where, where's the cutoff again? Shards of Alara. Up to oh. or including? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Probably up to. Yeah, if that's the case, I could see Bloodbraid getting reprinted. Maelstrom Pulse, maybe? It says through Alara Reborn, so I'm assuming it also includes those sets. So it just just made it under the yeah. Under the wire there. I saw this last week. The new art for the Power Nine on Moto. What's the deal with that? Well, they're reprinting the Power Nine in the Magic Online Cube, and the big speculation is that. Well, actually, I think they've said that once they do that, that power will be available to players online. I think that someone mentioned that they were going to be making power available on MTGO, coinciding with Magic's 20th anniversary. And so the question is, how is this going to affect vintage? Is there going to be a vintage scene that pops up online? There's already something that's like it with MTGO Classic. But obviously, up until now, none of the power cards have been in there, so it's really sort of a watered-down eternal format. Well, it's sort of between Vintage and Legacy. Yeah. You have a closer-to-Vintage restricted list, or you have a restricted list rather than a banned list, so you still have the power cards, but you don't have the acceleration that comes along with the Power 9, and you know the brokenness that comes with Ancestral and Time Lock, Time Twister and Time Bolt. The big question I have is uh, how the classic restricted list would be reconciled with the uh, actual vintage restricted list. Right. We have a, we have a lot of uh, obvious uh, cards that are potentially now restrictable as a result of power being available. Oh. You know, Library of Alexandria being a good example, or uh, Lion's Eye Diamond, Lotus Petal. Mm-hmm. Which of these two formats changes to match the other? And if they don't, why not? Right. Yeah, that's a hard one to answer. It's hard to speculate here, especially because we don't know exactly what will be available. Um, and they're also, they're including Drain as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So is Bazaar already on MTGO? Yes. And so is Workshop. Okay. Yeah, Workshops are cheap, too, online. I imagine these cards will be cheap. I mean, they only have value on MTGO. It's not like you can redeem them somehow. So they can only be used to play a classic format on MTGO. It doesn't seem like they can really get to be that valuable. The problem is, is that you have to cross the hurdle of like force of will, which is 120 bucks online, which is pretty ridiculous if you really want to get into that that format. Right. There's a pretty big barrier for entry. Yeah, it's just hard to say. There's there's a lot that could happen, could not happen. I think ultimately it's good for vintage simply because. More people will have access to and be playing these cards that might inspire them to look for a vintage event in the real world that they can actually go to and play. Really, the thing that Magic Online, I think, is something that I wish could transition over to Magic in person is the split time clock. Oh, totally. That would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, logistically, it's I don't know how you do it, but totally gets rid of slow play. You know, play as slow as you want. You're going to lose. That's up to you. Slow play, in theory, is a solved problem. It's really more of a problem with (laughs) 
I, yeah, I hear you laughing. But it's <laughs> re- if if you're experiencing issues with slow play, I'd say it's probably more of a more of a problem with say your your TO or your your judge not uh, enforcing it or, or following up on it enough. Slow play is not a problem that's specific to any any one format. It's it's really all across Magic. I mean, let's be fair. It is totally specific to Legacy. <laughs> yeah, those guys don't know what they're doing, right? Freaking countertop. Oh, yeah, it's got counters and top and brainstorm. Mm-hmm. If you watch, say, a Grand Prix top eight or, or, or whatnot, you're not going to see any games that um, slow play and ends up deciding, and that's as a result of the fact that the judges there are generally going to know what they're doing. And are well, in a Grand gonna... Prix top eight, the top eight isn't timed, right? Well, yes, that's true. However, that doesn't mean that slow play is going to happen. I mean, players do need to, to keep it moving. And for certain well, reasons, we, we need you know, to get players out of the event hall before, the, before it closes. I feel like, right. so, I feel like my problem with slow play um, is a personal problem. It's that I don't want to harm this enjoyable relationship that I have struck up with my <laughs> opponent by saying that he is either intentionally or unwittingly playing too slowly. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Again, I'd even say that the the fact that you're in the position, you find yourself in the position of, of needing to get a judge involved, might mean that also a, a judge is not doing what they're supposed to do or or living up to all of their obligations. Since uh, really, if uh, if an event is being run properly and, and all the, all of the uh, beats are being hit and, and everything is going according to plan, we really should be on top of that. Uh, on top of players that are are playing slowly and dealing with them really before the opportunity for you to get upset about it even comes up. I mean, that that gets pretty difficult at like a Grand Prix when you have a thousand matches going on in round one, right? Well, that's true. Uh, If we're talking about, say, the first few rounds of an event versus the later rounds, maybe there's some room for argument. Right. I mean, I guess it kind of would be more of an issue in the later rounds. I'm thinking in terms of more like a PTQ or whatnot, but yes, you're right. And by the time we get to later rounds, I certainly would hope that any issues with slow play have been addressed. You know, the players that have we've identified as having taken the longest matches round after round have perhaps been spoken to, been given a warning, even better, or uh, just otherwise uh, addressed. They're sort of the opposite extremes that we're talking about here, because on one hand, you have the heavily judged, like, PTQs and stuff like that, and yet, if we're talking about vintage, so much of that is played just in card stores, there's no actual official judge on hand, and that becomes sort of a difficult, um, how exactly do you escalate slow play when there's no one actually available to watch the game and designate whether slow play is occurring or not, but that's a TV thing. Sure, you're right, or or at least a uh, an everyone else type type kind of thing, and that's you know the the obvious problem that comes with the unsanctioned events is you know you don't have the built-in event checking that comes with uh, with a sanctioned event and, and some people that know what they're doing. I suppose what we do have is the relentless shaming of our friends like Tuan, who slow play on a regular basis. <laughs> my my favorite was always when we had events that were judged by committee, where you'd sort of raise your hand and call for a judge and everyone would sort of look at you because everyone else realized that there was no judge so you know and then you'd ask your question to the room and there'd sort of be this murmuring and then some consensus would come out of it of who was in the right and who was in the wrong and which uh, direction this game should go from here and a lot of judge calls can be answered by that yeah a lot of it a lot of it works pretty well because you you know you get the it's it really ends up just being hard interaction questions, you know, what happens now that 
I've ether vialed in a curse catcher or something, you know, whatever. It's just, um, you know. Do you think that rules questions make up a, a lot of the vintage judge calls? I mean, in my experience, it's more about the administrative type stuff. You know, I, I missed a trigger. What do I, what do, I do? Um, oh. if there's, if there's, if there's one difference, uh, if, if there's one thing I can say about vintage players, it is, it is that they do seem to know the rules. You know, they right. seem to, they seem to know the, the cards a little bit better than the average magic player since they've yeah. perhaps been a lot of them certainly longer. Try to know their, their particular deck a little bit better. I mean, it'd be really hard to go into a tournament with, you know, say dragon combo and really not have any idea how dragon combo works. <laughs> yeah, it seems awful. I mean, also, also the, the thing is, you know, with standard, you're playing a deck someone came up with yesterday, whereas in vintage, like, you probably played some form of this deck for the last five years. Yeah, so you're just more familiar with the cards in general. Like, the, the vintage card pool doesn't change, so you, you get to know it a little bit better. Yeah, and the card interactions you understand because you've already dealt with them. Right. I can only think of one exception to that, and that was the Flash era, when everybody was net decking Flash, and that deck had a ton of little subtle rules interactions, especially when somebody tried to uh, mess with your combo. Like, if you net decked Flash, you had a basic idea of how to combo out, but as soon as things started getting complicated, yeah. it got real. <laughs> <laughs> Judge, how do I win? Exactly. <laughs> I know what you're talking about, and... I think the other uh, the other aspect of it is that the vintage community is a little bit more of a there's, there's a little bit more camaraderie within the community. I, I think you know by and large vintage players are, are living, say in the past. You know I, I say this lovingly, and as a person who also lives in the past and also plays vintage, maybe judging itself wasn't as good as it as it is these days. But right now it is it is pretty darn good if you if you get some capable judges that know what they're doing. Uh, they generally will help players more than they will hurt them. Right. That maybe wasn't always quite the case, you know, six, seven, eight, ten years ago. I wonder how much, you know, players not wanting to get judges involved and just being, as you said, more willing to work things out on their own and judge by committee, as, as you say, is, is kind of a, right. a holdover from old and older, uh, older sensibilities. I think the, so speaking to like sanctioned events. So, I mean, like I pretty much mostly play eternal formats. So like modern legacy vintage and a lot of those tournaments are at they're like side events for, you know, big standard tournaments or big limited tournaments. And so, you know, they're kind of casual, but I mean, my experience with the judges at those events is the judges really enjoy dealing with those like modern events and legacy events because they're like, wow, the questions are interesting. Whereas in standard, I get asked the same question 40 times. I know what you're talking about. Uh, one thing we were talking about earlier was how all of the advances that have been made to Oracle, meaning that uh, cards, by and large, actually do what they say these days, meaning you can pick up a card and, and read it, really, for the most part, figure out exactly what it does based on the, the text that's on the card. And, of course, we, we live in the age of smartphones. You know, what, what judge doesn't have a, a smartphone these days? So really, within the last few years, because of these reasons, I, I think the stigma that used to exist for uh, judging the eternal formats has, has really gone away. Judges are on top of things and, and can pretty much handle any format. We don't need particular judges to specialize in, in say, legacy like we, we really did five years ago. Do you feel like you're a, a vintage specialist judge? I mean, I know that you... Oh, sure. <laughs> well, yes, I know you, you've judged tournaments for Nick Koss on the East Coast and stuff like that, right? And, well, I know you, you judged some of the Star City Power 9. and um, Yeah, I uh, at least as of a few years ago, yes. It's just that I don't actually have the occasion to judge much vintage anymore. Right. I don't know how much of a, of a specialist I can claim to be. But you're right, right. I, I was lucky enough to get to head judge the last, I, I think, three or four uh, SCG Power 9s. 
and then okay. and then judged a, a handful uh, in the middle of, of the stack as well. It's certainly a format I know, and I've I've never been afraid of it. Right. And how, uh, how long have you been playing vintage? Uh, I've been at it since the late nineties, so uh, twelve, thirteen years or so. Okay. So you like? Did you start in like the keeper era and stuff? Oh yeah, I think you've you've dug up some of my old tournament reports. They're they're floating around the internet where I mostly wrote about playing keeper. Uh, I was one of the people that kind of lived for that deck and maybe played it a lot longer than it was actually worth playing, to be honest. Some of our listeners just, might not be totally familiar with what keeper entails. Could you just give a short rundown on the deck? Oh sure, keeper. Uh, otherwise known as the deck or five color control was considered for a long time to be the best deck in vintage it was blue based control started out as a, a mirror universe slash fireball slash sarah angel killing deck that otherwise had a lot of control cards and cards that focused on card advantage you know jam day tome and disrupting scepter were the classic pieces uh, it evolved over time with with the rest of vintage and at some point kind of be, uh, at least around the time when i started playing it kind of became more of what we would call a, a silver bullet control deck meaning a deck that still had all of these card advantage uh, elements to it but also had lots of tutors and lots of 1x cards that just dealt with entire classifications of other decks really well like the you play the one abyss to fight really any creature deck or the balance to go for for the, all the suicide decks in the format or the mind twist to go grab you know so that you can cast a big mana drain powered twist on turn two versus the rival control deck the common thread was blue based deck control permission card advantage and all the broken cards in the format it was a way to play the entire format at once you know you you, you didn't have to Settle for playing individual decks, which each contained some of the broken cards. You, you got to play one deck that had all of the broken cards in it. Huh. Which is, you know, not too far off from current vintage loop-based control. There's a lot of cards that are, you know, set cards that you're going to play, I guess, mostly restricted cards. Well, I think that's true. However, there's, there's more of a distribution of power in the format these days. I mean, right, there I are more viable options now than there were before, is what you're saying? Exactly, uh, and in fact, there's stuff that's really the best in the format, like say, you know, we, we talk about Mishra's Workshop being a, a tier one deck these days, and you know, how in the world are you going to incorporate Mishra's Workshops in your, in your blue base control now? You can't. Right, but um, if you think about all of the classic expensive cards in Magic, the cards that were really valuable, say Moxes, Black Lotus, Power Blue, outliers like say Juzam Jin, or I guess Library of Alexandria, those were pretty much all of the cards that were, you know, had had greater than a one hundred dollar price tag, and those were not coincidentally also regarded as the really all of the good cards in the format. I mean, Bazaar of Baghdad was you know, a twenty dollar card, what up until beginning of last decade, because no one realized that it was a great card. Right. All the cards that were identified as being really good were, aside from Juzam Jim, were playable in one deck, and that deck was Keeper. The the appeal for playing Keeper was was the fact that you could quite literally play everything that the format had to offer in terms of really brokenness in one deck. What made Keeper no longer become the dominant force in the game? Well, in my opinion, it had to do with the advancement of technology of the format as a whole. The fact of the matter is that stuff like Mishra's Workshop was a good card and, and was breakable and, and was usable this whole time. It's just that no one wanted to uh, believe it. Vintage players in general kind of woke up to it a little bit and were willing to deal with the fact that these cards were, were breakable and, and were out there. You know, I, I think of really the, the last era of Keeper being a playable deck was really right around the time when 
when Groatog was first getting big. The Psychotog, Quirion Dryad, Cantrip, Steve Menendian deck. Lots of gushes and maybe a Berserk, but uh, lots of random broken stuff. I, I, I just remember sitting down to my, my Groatog matches and just figuring out how in the world am I, am I going to win this match and <laughs> you know, not having an answer, not finding one. <laughs> and then the book was closed. When was that in relation to the, the printing of Fetchlands? Really, Groatog got big. This we're, we're talking right around the unrestriction of Berserk. Mm-hmm. Not that one should have been related to the other. It just so happened that those two things occurred at the same time. I think that was mid-2003. Okay. So that would have been within a year or so of the printing of Fetchlands. I actually played both versions of Keeper. I, I played plenty of Keeper before Fetchlands existed, and then, of course, as soon as Onslaught was printed, I immediately switched over. I immediately added Brainstorm to, to my Keeper. Right. And uh, use that, but like I said before, it, it, it still it wasn't enough to keep up with the um, with the brokenness of the rest of the format. Right, because that's always what it seemed to me is like the, the keeper era died out because the card selection that you got from Brainstorm and Fetchlands was so much better than the simple card advantage, just drawing cards that you got with keeper. Keeper itself used Brainstorm Fetchlands, so I don't I don't know. Right, right, but I mean before that, like there were decks that were better at abusing Brainstorm and Fetchlands than Keeper was, because ultimately they had more powerful cards that they could go find rather than finding a card that answered something as a one for one or two for one. I see. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't really know. Obviously, I didn't play back then, but that's always sort of been my impression. I mean, we did play back then, but yeah, not. <laughs> Yeah, back then I was playing four Black Lives and four Wheel of Fortune. So yeah, the the four Soul Ring, four Dingus Egg deck. Why stop at four? That's what I want to ask you. <laughs> I, I think we still had some semblance of law and order in our playgroup. It was just that, you know we didn't really know what the restricted list was, but we knew that there was a limit of cards that you could play. Getting back to the judging topic, because that's initially where we came from. Was there anything in vintage? Uh, in, in your career playing vintage, playing Keeper, that actually got you into judging? Was there a connection there, or was it just that you discovered that you had more love for, for judging, or, or how, did that, how did you get into judging, essentially? The connection between those two events in my uh, magic career, so to speak, really just has to do with me getting bored with stuff and wanting to move on. Uh, like I said before, I, I you know played lots of Type 2 when I was in high school, and Know, right around the time I got my first job and could actually afford to buy cards I had looked at when I was 14 but couldn't actually afford uh, is right around when I got into vintage. Uh-huh. You know, by that point, of course, I was bored of playing nonstop type two and, and bored of uh, you know having, having uh, gone through my, my fifth rotation and you know not being too interested in uh, what that format was doing. The same thing can be said about me getting interested in judging was just kind of, a, by that point, bored with magic in general, vintage included, unfortunately, uh, and was still interested in staying involved with the game. Magic is one of those things that just has so much to offer. I mean, you can just kill a day surfing magic website, and uh, you don't actually need to be playing magic to, to do any of that stuff. You know, there are other outlets that are available, like, say, judging, where you can kind of put all of this you know, random rules trivia or uh, knowledge of, of the way that things work to good use and still right. be involved with the game. And do you think that playing vintage gives you any unique insight into judging, or vice versa? Because I have to imagine that most judges would come from a limited FNM background, where, it, especially even at low levels, where you'd have people who go to a store every week and, you know, there's no judge, so they feel like they can step up and start judging. So they, they come from a, 
a smaller background than than vintage would be, and I, you know, certainly newer background than sure you know, your career would have given you. Now that you mention it, I did get a lot of leverage off of the fact that I was able to market myself as kind of a vintage expert judge, you know, five years ago, back when, when these distinctions actually mattered. Mm-hmm. You know, like we were saying a little while ago, I, I did have the, the good luck to uh, be living in Virginia around the time that Star City Games was doing the Power Nine tournament, so they conscripted me to, to head judge a, a few of the, uh, the Power Nine events, mainly based on my love of and familiarity with the format. And really, that was kind of the way I, I made my way into the judging scene was just kind of, you know, just kind of saying, hey, look at me. I'm the vintage guy. You know, you, this is how you should know me. That's how I kind of tried to make a name for myself. I'd say that paid off pretty well. So I have right. to ask, do you find, I mean, obviously, there hasn't been a Star City Power Nine for a while, but uh, in an average tournament, do you disqualify more standard players or vintage players <laughs> if we were to take a Don't standard think- vintage or a standard standard tournament? I have not personally ever disqualified a vintage player. I've disqualified plenty of non-vintage players. All right. (laughs) It's not something I'm bragging about. Good enough for me. (laughs) But uh, then again, I've judged a whole lot more non-vintage than vintage. Those standard rule breakers. Well, again, that's probably a a matter of how experienced the players are with their particular format. Yeah. I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. That's uh, most of the things that, that players do to get themselves disqualified, believe it or not, are, are things that they didn't do intentionally. Stuff that they did that they didn't realize was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, accidentally bribing your opponent or, or accidentally uh, stacking your deck even. These are, are, are types of the, the most common reasons. Could you just throw out some of those easily avoidable but happen all the time disqualifications? Because I'd be curious to hear, and it actually might benefit our listeners some. Yeah, well, I think it's something to do from, like, the player that plays at an FNM level all the time, and they decide they want to go to a competitive level event. You know, what are some things that they could get themselves in trouble, and they, they don't even realize it? And actually, wasn't there, it was it our second episode when we advised people to do something oh, yeah. that turned out to be totally illegal and would totally get you disqualified? Yeah, that was me. Nice work. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I... <laughs> About that one. <laughs> uh, all right, so which of these questions do you want me to answer first, or I, I guess I get to choose? In terms of c- coming from a um, regular REL event to a competitive REL event, you'd actually be surprised if, if anything, there's more surprise the other way. When Magic players play their first competitive REL event, I think by and large, their expectations are that things are, are going to be a little more draconian than, than in fact they really are. So when, when their opponent makes a mistake, you know, makes a big screw up that ends up say, um, you know, giving them some big advantage, they're often surprised to hear that the opponent isn't, say, getting a game loss, and is, in fact, just you know, getting a, a warning rather than the other way around. It's actually pretty tough to get straight-up disqualified these days. Magic has gotten very user-friendly over the last few years, especially. One of the things that we were discussing just prior to recording was the fact that in order to actually get disqualified for cheating... Unless you're doing a handful of things, you pretty much have to specifically know that what you were doing is against the rules in order to actually get disqualified for it. So, like an example would be brainstorming for four cards? Well, like I said, the question is, why did you draw four cards? Was it because you thought brainstorm said draw four, or is it because you were just hoping you could get away with it? What if they just accidentally stuck together? Well, then it, it sounds like you, you made an honest mistake, so we probably would not disqualify you. I think what you've done there is a committed infraction known as drawing extra cards. It would be pretty difficult to contrive a hypothetical situation where that's not the case. 
But uh, that does mean you'll get a game loss, but you should not expect to get disqualified for that. And again, that, that's the kind of thing that we, happens when we deal with, you know, mostly FNM players. They're, they're surprised that they're not getting kicked out of the tournament when they accidentally do that, you know. So I'm, I'm curious about the accidentally stacking your deck disqualification. It's possible, but if, let's say, you, for some reason, are under the impression that mana weaving is legal, and you do that, you should get disqualified, even if you did not know that you couldn't do that. So is mana I mean, weaving strictly illegal? Because I was under the impression that it was legal, so long as you sufficiently randomized, which basically undid the mana weaving. <laughs> I hope you're not feigning ignorance, because ignorance, cause like I just said, you don't have to be aware of its... Uh, Illegality. Because I've seen people mana weave in Vintage before, and I've told them that they have to sufficiently randomize to remove it, so why are they doing it? And they say, I just like to. Yeah, well, uh, mana weaving is, a, is an hour-long conversation in and of itself, but basically a lot of the policy that's in place is there to deal with how Magic players are already going to play the game rather than a misguided attempt to get them to play how we think that they should play. Um, what I mean is, even if mana weaving is a purely superstitious waste of time, which it is, you know, if it's done right, if you if you randomly shuffle afterward, magic players are still going to do it, and that's a fact of life. It as really is. Do it within three minutes. Uh, yeah, yeah. The reason that mana weaving is allowed is mainly because players expect to be able to do the stuff that they were intending to do in the first place. So, Again, even even though it's a waste of time, even though it makes no sense, they're going to do it anyway, so therefore policy exists to allow them to do it. It's like never changing your underwear, right? What? <laughs> your lucky underwear? You don't have lucky underwear? Uh, let me check. Nope. <laughs> what would be other examples of ways to easily get disqualified that you would not expect? One of the bigger changes to policy recently has been this big to-do about missed triggers, which uh, we've had uh, two rewrites in policy in 2012, two major rewrites in policy, runner, our third policy of the year currently. One of the big changes from how things were in 2011 and earlier was that if you see your opponent miss a trigger, even if it's a trigger that would benefit them, you don't actually have to say anything about it. You just say nothing and play on. If you notice your opponent make some other kind of an error, like, say, playing two lands in a turn or, or even drawing four cards off of a brainstorm or something that isn't actually a trigger, you have to point it out. And if you don't point it out, you're going to have a hard time talking your way out of that disqualification. What I'm saying is, on the one hand, we're kind of training players that in certain circumstances they don't have to call a judge when their opponent makes a mistake. And, you know, setting them up to think that that might mean that they don't have to call a judge when their opponent makes any type of mistakes, not just missed triggers. That's so it. It, seems, it seems really difficult as a judge to figure out, you know, if, did that person see it and ignore it, or did they actually dismiss it? Um, you're right. And How do you prove yeah. that? You can't. Well, proof is not something we are required to do. What we want to do in order to determine if a player is cheating is... Get a determine what happened. You know, become reasonably sure that we have a cheater on our hands, and uh, and act on that. Again, like I said, proof is has never really been a requirement. We used to use a term called being fifty one percent sure, meaning you're you're more sure than not that a player is cheating, and treat, then therefore treat them as a cheater and and uh, move forward. So you're saying, I mean, this it's gonna you know you're gonna come across a situation where this player is continuously involved in these type of calls. It's not something that you're going to make a ruling on the very first time it happens? 
if a player is continuously committing errors on, you mean making mistakes that are uh, giving him an advantage? What exactly are you asking? I'm sorry. Well, I'm saying so. Like my opponent has has a trigger that, or they do something that benefits me, and it's not a trigger. It's something they have to do, and I just ignore it because it benefits me anyway. Right. Uh, if I was unclear about this, and I apologize that I guess I was, even if you notice your opponent miss a trigger that you know might have benefited him or even might have benefited you or whatever, as long as it's a trigger and as long as it's controlled by your opponent, you never have to say anything. Got that's, it. So, that's, so, that's so a far, far-fetched example is our game's gone really long. My opponent has three cards left in his library. For his draw step, he decides to draw two cards, and I say, sweet. Uh, Yes, uh, well, that, uh, of course, is not an example of a mistrigger anymore. Right, yeah, no, I, I didn't mean to say trigger in the last example. So your your question, then, is uh, what exactly is, is... So, I mean, like, how do you, for the first time that happens, how, how can you say, oh, you noticed them draw two cards and you specifically ignored it? What if I just didn't notice that? Determining which of those two things is true is, uh, is a pretty tough part of the job. Um, it, uh, it does come down to talking to players and just trying to get a read on them. Um, obviously, certain, with certain players, you're going to be more comfortable making that decision than you are with others. But, uh, I mean, if, if you're asking me how to, how to, how to, how to tell when someone's lying, there's, I mean, you can't, you can't honestly expect me to answer that. It always comes down to a case-by-case basis and feeling out the situation and, and dealing with it. Most judges do err on the side of caution, by and large. So, it's uh, probably something you get better at with time, at being a judge. In theory, sure. I, I, I don't know if I'm willing to say I'm any better with it than I was 10 years ago. Well, I think that's one of the things where it's difficult to deal with something like, like anytime there's a high-profile disqualification, there's an internet bonanza on the subject, and you have lots of people lining up on both sides, and it really comes down to it was a judgment call that that judge made because that judge had to act on imperfect information. They're not necessarily yeah. 100% answer on either side. People are going to get frustrated on both sides because that judge couldn't prove 100% that he was right, but they just have to act in the time with what they have. You're absolutely right about that. I mean, whenever you read about the details of a judge call, you know, here, here are the details. This player was DQ'd because he drew two cards in one turn. Well, you know, what, what does that story tell you? It certainly doesn't give you the whole picture. I mean, the, the part that wasn't reported was the fact that, you know, this player presumably had a long conversation with a judge that took the judge call and then eventually the head judge, you know, where it was determined that he intentionally drew two cards. No one noticed the howling mine in play? <laughs> even, even that Jackie Lee situation from not long ago, to use a specific example involved, it was a life total discrepancy? Yeah. It, it was a life total discrepancy. And if, if you go back and you read the details of what was, what was happening is that uh, Jackie Lee noticed that her opponent had the wrong life total for her and, you know, wasn't saying anything about it and uh, eventually got disqualified as a result of that. But even that report of, uh, of the situation leaves off the fact that little things like, you know, Jackie Lee presumably was... You know, it was determined that she actually knew that her opponent had to show an accurate life total and therefore intentionally didn't say anything about it. Mm-hmm. These things are pretty much implied whenever you, you hear about a disqualification but are not necessarily explicitly communicated, which right. is what causes a lot of the outcry whenever anyone gets DQ'd. So essentially a lot more goes into judging than what we see. I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any favorite good judge calls that you've made? Do you have any really good situations <laughs> where... <laughs> Has anyone ever thrown a chair or anything like that? Uh, there, there was a magic player named uh, 
What's his name? Bachman. Bachman. Yeah, early days of magic. Go, go look it up. There, there was a player who was, in fact, cute for throwing the chair, but that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't a judge call I made. Michael Bachman? Huh. I'll tell you a, a story, if, if you'd like. And this is one I, I've told before, and I'm guessing everybody in the room has heard this one. But uh, this actually happened at one of the uh, last few Star City Games Power 9 events in uh, Charlotte, 2006, I think, 2007. There was a player, the, the story begins just after a, a, one player was, uh, was disqualified for manipulation of, of game materials and, and for lying to a judge, professed his innocence until the end, and uh, after having been disqualified, kind of you know, hung out in the area, and you know, halfway through the quarterfinals, waved his hands and got everyone's attention, and pulled a card out of his deck, one that he'd used in the event, and said, look, my beta time walk, and then ate it. Ate his beta time walk right in front of everybody. <laughs> And uh, no one knows why. Been, uh, been a lot of speculation. It's thought that the player might have uh, been trying to, you know, show that you know there's there's no way he would have intended to cheat because you know what does he care about the, the prize? What what does he care about potentially winning another time lock if he's willing to to destroy and partially digest <laughs> his own beta time lock, his own his own his own nicer version of that card ahead of time. So, that seems awesome. That was awesome. That that player uh, the player is still around, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm not gonna not gonna give his uh, actual name, but he did pick up a few nicknames that weekend. Uh, some, <laughs> some some people called him the the Gorilla Shaman. That's, that's <laughs> more more appropriate if he had eaten a box. Oh, totally. But uh, but uh, that was that was uh, my favorite little story from from that weekend. What about like any any bizarre like judge calls where you're just like what? Because I know that Nat played an event kind of recently where his opponent had to call the judge on himself to ask if he had actually conceded or not. Ask if he had conceded. That was a good one. <laughs> bizarre judge calls. Players ask about all all kinds of things. You'd be amazed what players are capable of, of screwing up. I've seen bizarrely uh, honorable judge calls. Uh, just something recent that happened in Charlotte was a player. Um, he uh, drew two cards in a turn and. Just before he was about to win his match, which was a, which was in fact a winning in for for top eight, called the judge on himself, said, "Hey, I drew two cards this turn or uh, this game, you know, five turns ago. Uh, I didn't say anything about it. I don't want to win that way. So disqualify me?" Question mark. The answer was. The answer was yes. <laughs> so so what happened in those five turns that all of a sudden this player? Now cared about drawing extra cards. Maybe he was nagging at him and eating away at his soul. That, that's what I that think. Don't tell card. But it, it sounded like he, um, his conscience uh, got the better of him. He uh, perhaps was sincere when he said he, he didn't want to win that way. That is something I've never heard of before. A magic player. Yeah, I mean, actually, heard of who knew? I actually want to go back to that time walk. Did you did you see the time walk? Is it real or was it a proxy? I saw a piece of it. And again, to, to clarify, this was a card that the player had pulled out of his deck that he had just used. Oh, it should have been real. So, right, by all accounts, it was it had passed our, our uh, BS test if, if he had been, been deck checked that day. But uh, I saw a piece of it, and I did see what looked like the Telltale Blue Stripe. The obvious question is, you know, was this a fake? And, uh, it doesn't I, seem like know, it. I don't know. I mean, what we... <laughs> Whether it was a fake doesn't really change how interesting of the story was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
So speaking of meat and potatoes, we're going on to the holiday selection of our serious food and drink, and we're going to talk about pies. I didn't really want to get into this with you, but apparently you're going to force the subject. I'm going to force it, because I think it's important. <laughs> I Personally, agree pie is important. I think, first of all, we should all agree that pie is delicious. Sure. Agree. Is that, is that, uh, can we have a unanimous vote on that? Or? I'm down with pie. You know, I, I really, you know, I, I think there's lots of good pies. We had Jeff and I being cousins shared a Thanksgiving dinner with our family that included six pies. Wow. Um, yeah, it was insane. There was an apple pie. There was a cherry pie. Both of those were made by Jeff's wife, right? Mm-hmm. Did you make another one? Uh, no, it was just the apple and the cherry for that. And my mom made a pumpkin pie and a pecan pie. And Jeff's sister-in-law made a chocolate chip pie and a chocolate chip pie with nuts. So those were our six pies. There I got to try the chocolate chip pie with nuts and the cherry pie, both of which were very good. I actually only had the apple pie there, but I ended up taking home the apple pie, the cherry pie, and the chocolate chip pie. I did not get to try the chocolate chip pie with nuts, which I believe you said was the star. It was insane. See, I'm so- I mean, chocolate chip pie is, is really good anyway. See, I mean, it's chocolate. I feel like chocolate like, chip pie like, is a little bit. It's like cheating. Is it like cheating? I I feel like it's a little bit like cheating, and when I'm eating it, <laughs> I'm basically like I feel like I'm just eating a chocolate chip cookie. A big chocolate. Yeah, chip yeah, cookie. I agree, but yeah. <laughs> I think it's almost cheating. I I get that. I get that. It was really good. Though. I mean, I you know, chocolate dessert is yeah. was great. I was actually I was really surprised by the cherry pie because I'm not really a huge cherry pie person. We brought that pie home and it just evaporated. Yeah. Well, the cherry pie for the other thing, the cherry pie was beautiful. Oh yeah. You guys did the actual lattice crust. Nobody does the lattice. Yeah, crust. And, and we even got the the pastry wheel that that yeah. makes the. I don't remember what the edges are called on the lattice, but yeah, it was it was perfect. Yeah, it was. They were really good. And then I also, being married, I had to go to my well, didn't have to go, but I (laughs) went to my wife's family Thanksgiving as well, and her grandmother also made a a pumpkin pie and a pecan pie, both of which are favorites of mine, and they they were both excellent as well. I, I, you know, like I said, pie is great. There's very few pies that I don't like. I think actually that. The one pie that I've had that I didn't like was an experiment by my mom based on a recipe that she got out of a book that was squash and beer pie. Wow. That doesn't sound um, <laughs> solid. You, you, were, I, you were at that Thanksgiving, too, I think, Jeff. That was probably 10 years ago, at least. And Yeah, it was terrible. I think I probably skipped that one. <laughs> yeah, I would have, too, had I known. <laughs> but it was probably the worst concoction you've never seen. Squash and beer, huh? Yeah. So do you want to have this cross debate? Yeah, did you want to? Chapel, did you did you get to ask that local pie store about... So, so I did. I actually didn't have pie for the holidays, but I found a small business pie store in Denver called the Humble Pie Store. All their pies are from scratch, and it looks like they have a rotating menu monthly. Because when I was there, they said November's menu. Uh, I got two pieces. I got a chocolate chess pie, which had like a... Really light cream on the top, and then kind of like a thicker, almost like brownie type, really rich pie. And then I got some sort of banana cream pie that had like pieces of real banana in there, and the banana cream was like, you know, tasted like bananas, not like chemicals. So that was awesome. Uh, And I did ask what they made their pie crust out of if it was butter, shortening, or lard. She said they use butter and shortening. 
Ah, interesting. Do they combine them? Because when I asked Sarah about this, she read up on it, and she found a lot of people who were advocating mixing butter and shortening for the perfect crust in a three-quarters butter, one-quarter shortening. We, we did I, not I, get into, you know, that sort of detail. I was curious. Yeah, that's yeah, funny. I've, I've seen those recipes as well. Actually, I was, I was reading up on the construction of pie crust, and it's, it's sort of interesting because I was learning about the mechanics of pie crust, how pie crust works. And essentially what you have is balls of flour that are coated by a layer of fat. And this is where either the butter or the shortening or the lard comes into play. And normally, if you add water to flour, it will form gluten. And that's what you sort of get that toughness of bread where it's sort of chewy and you know has a little bit of bite to it. But for a pastry, you want it to be flaky. And pie crust is essentially a pastry crust. So the layer of fat on the outside of the flour separates the, the flour from the water and prevents it from forming that gluten. So what you end up with is a flaky crust because it's got little layers of flour and fat that keep everything separated. And Jeff and I, well, Jeff and uh, his wife and I uh, talked about this at Thanksgiving a bit, and she she made her pie crusts with butter, and all the pie crusts that I've ever made, my mom's ever made, have been with shortening. And there was some question as to whether the whether they've changed the recipe of commercially available shortenings to not include trans fats, and whether that has affected the pie crust making abilities of the shortening. Yeah. So, and this is an interesting thing for Sarah's family because Sarah's grown up always having homemade pie crust. My mom, I have to admit, has always had store-bought pie crust. So when I got together with Sarah, this was a new experience for me and I got into this the whole drama of this. Her mom had always made shortening crust, but she says that in the last, I don't know, I don't know when they changed the recipe, but she said that when they when they removed the trans fat, it got a lot harder to work with the crust because it became brittle and tended to fall apart a lot. And mm -hmm. I know that Sarah tried to make pies with that for the first couple of years when we were married, and she just got so frustrated because she couldn't get the dough to work the way that she wanted it to. And when she switched to this butter crust, she suddenly found that it was way easier to play around with. Like, I'm not entirely sure how we would have been able to make that lattice crust, if we were sure. using her old shortening recipe, because everything would just be falling apart. I did right. hear that because her mom, when she's making pies for like the big engagement now, she will go out and especially get the lard that still has all of those old fats in it because it's easier to work with. But I really still feel that that the butter crust adds a, brings along a flakiness and a deliciousness that I think takes it above the, the shortening crust in terms of flavor. Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, I've asked, I mean, obviously I know what uh, my mom does, and I asked my wife's mom and what she does and what her mother and her mother-in-law do, so I've gotten some more opinions, and <laughs> I know that her mom, just, just asking around, I know that her mother-in-law used to use lard until worries about cholesterol started coming into it, and then she switched to shortening. My mother-in-law, my wife's mother, uh, also uses uh, store-bought crusts for the most part, so... <laughs> Now, eating the, the butter crust at Thanksgiving, I could tell that it had a different flavor from the normal shortening crust that I was used to. You know, it's a little bit sweeter, and it, um, yeah, it, it was basically just a little bit sweeter, and it wasn't as, well, I, I think the saltiness of the shortening crust is a nicer counterpoint to the normal sweetness of a pie. Mm, okay. I usually, get a, you know, a nice sweet filling with a chocolate chip pie or apple pie or whatever, and it's you know, you have a little bit of 
contrast in flavor when you have a, a slightly saltier crust. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that was the only thing I really know. The texture of the butter crust that Sarah made was, was still excellent and still fine. So <laughs> in my learning about pie crust, I also learned that you know the big thing with any pie crust is that you have to keep the ingredients or you try and keep the ingredients cool as you're working with them and you don't work with like when you add the water you add ice water rather than just tap water or warm water even. And then chill the pie crust and don't work with it next to the stove as it's preheating and things like that so that it doesn't warm up prematurely and the fat starts to melt Mm -hmm. because that'll make it softer in general or be more prone to tearing and sticking, things like that. That was just my observation. I really, I mean, I didn't really have a problem with the pie crust. I I just thought it was interesting because, you know, you you guys seem very set in the butter crust. Like I said, I I haven't had trouble making a, a shortening crust recently and obviously my mom did it for thanksgiving so i don't think she's had any trouble either i know that it leads me to me getting more pies so i'm cool with it because yeah. sarah's set with buttercrust yeah go for it eat more pie that's nice that's my plan <laughs> you can see some of our other pie discussions i have uh, i started a hashtag called uh, many insane pies on twitter so <laughs> if anyone wants to add that share your favorite pies pie recipes whatever go ahead i've already shared some stuff you can look it up It's that time again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. And I'm Abe Corson. And I hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip. Take a little trip.